Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 31. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This is the word of God. We're wrapping up our story on, our study on Jacob today, and uh, this passage, this passage marks the turning point of Jacob's life, because Jacob uh, is a changed man after this event. What's the event? Jacob, he wrestles God, and it's more than a metaphor. It's more than a metaphor. It's, uh, the key here is that Jacob physically and literally encountered God in a personal way. That's what this passage is about. This is God. This is the brilliance of God. This is the beauty of God. This is the power of God. His brilliance is so brilliant. His beauty is so overwhelming that there's not a single person who can withstand it and sustain it. So time and time again, over and over, God counsels and advises, I cannot be near you. You cannot come to me face to face or else you will be consumed. That's what he says. God's brilliance, God's beauty is like a fire. You know what a fire is? A fire is warm. A fire is attractive. A fire is bright. A fire is beautiful. You want to get close to a fire, but if you get too close to a fire, that warmth, that brightness, that beauty will consume you. So when you come near to God, you're coming face-to-face with the fire. Uh, you're, you're face-to-face with the hurricane, the, the violent storm. Remember Abraham? Abraham, there's this deep dread, and then he sees this smoking fire pot and a blazing torch pass by. Remember Moses? Moses sees this pillar of fire, this violent wind that comes and condescends on the mountain where he is, and that's what Jacob is up against today. And it changes him, shapes his life forever. There are three points we're going to go into today. One is the context. Second, the lessons that we get from the climax as well as the conclusion. The context, the climax, and the conclusion. Okay, so pretty simple, right? We're going to, go, we're going to walk right through this. First, we're going to look at the context. You have to understand the narrative. God calls Abraham. Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. And God tells Abraham, you know, the world is broken. The world is violent. The world is falling into decay. But I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to redeem it through one of your children, one of your family members, through your family. This is my promise. I will be with you. One of your descendants will be the child of this promise. 
And so in every generation of descendants, one child will be the Savior. That child carries what we call the, the messianic seed. He's the Messiah. And uh, that child will be blessed. And then through him, another child will be born. And this happens generation after generation, over and over, until the ultimate Messiah would be born. Through Abraham, you have Isaac. Isaac is born. But then through Isaac, there's a twist. There are twins. Esau is born first, and then is Jacob. And Jacob, when he's born, he comes clutching the heel of Esau, his older brother. And so Rebekah he, she is the mother of uh, Esau and Jacob. She inquires about this. She inquires of the Lord, and she, and, and she hears this prophecy that the elder son will serve the younger. In other words, Jacob, who is born immediately after, they're twins, he's born immediately after Esau, he is the child of the promise. And Rebecca, she gets it, but it's so unconventional in their day. It's so unconventional because society, their culture is governed by this law of primogeniture. Culturally, the elder son is expected to be the leader. And so the elder son was always favored. The family centralized their hopes and their dreams and their wealth physically around this elder son. And Isaac, the father, he hides behind this culture. He loves Esau. He dotes on Esau. Now, Isaac is old and he's blind. And he prepares then to give this blessing to Esau. But Jacob, he resents his father for this. So what does he do? He disguises himself as Esau, and he steals the blessing. And the blessing, it's more than just the blessing of land. It's more than just the blessing of wealth. The blessing represents the favor of the father. And in so, in this family, it's the favor of God. It's his destiny. The blessing is this. You, my son, will reach the furthest potential, your fullest potential, and you will be then treated as the redeemer of your clan, of your family. You will carry that messianic seed. Now, Isaac, the father, he realizes what's happened, but he submits. He submits to this, but not Esau. Esau is impetuous. Esau is vindictive. He's vengeful, and so he wants to kill his brother, and so Jacob's got no choice. He's got to run away from home. That's what happens. He runs away from home, and he goes off for a time to live with his uncle. And Esau, I mean Jacob, he is, he's got no family. He's got no people. He's got no land. Where is his wealth? And so he's poor, and he's rootless, and he's got no friends. But God, in his aloneness, draws near to him in the dark appears to him in a dream, and he assures him, I will be with you. I will be with you. That's what he says. And that's amazing. Up until this point, Jacob doesn't get it. He has a very conditional relationship with God. He has a very transactional relationship with God. Many of us are like that growing up. Your relationship with God is not so much relational as it is transactional. I will obey if you provide. If you provide, then I will worship. Very transactional relationship. But over time, Jacob actually does pretty well. He's got two wives. He's got, up until this point, 11 sons. And he's got flocks 
And so he's grown pretty successful. He's doing pretty well, but he's tired and he's restless. Why is he restless? He's restless because he spent all this time building up his net worth, but he's got no self-worth. And so he knows, I got to go back home. It's time for me to meet Esau. Why does he need to meet Esau? It's because Jacob recognizes that Esau is still the one thing keeping me from the life that I want, keeping me from the blessing that I so desperately need. I want my family. I want my people. I want my land. Esau, they've been wrestling since birth. They've been jostling about in their mother's womb. Comes out, he's clutching. They're still wrestling. For the birthright, they're wrestling. He's trying to outsmart Esau into getting the blessing. They're wrestling. He's wrestling the world. He wrestles his father. He wrestles his brother. He's wrestling his uncle. And he says, you know, Esau is the one thing keeping me from this, from the blessing. I need to face him. And so we get to chapter 32. And in chapter 32, what Jacob does is he divides his family into two camps. Verse 7, which is not printed in your bulletins, there's this great fear of Esau. Because if Esau comes, he's vulnerable. If he attacks, I need to make a way to escape. And so what he does is he gathers this enormous endowment, this enormous series of gifts, and he starts sending them in waves to his brother, wealth, livestock, whatever he can to pacify him, whatever he can to possibly flatter him. He sends everyone ahead, including his family, with his possessions. And then we get to this passage, verses 22 and 23. Jacob is now alone in the dark again. Everything's come around full circle. What's he doing? He's putting himself, he's a very different person now. He's putting himself at Esau's mercy. He's making himself, he's choosing to be vulnerable. That's the context. That's the first point. Now, the second point, we get to the climax of this passage. That's what this is. By the time you get to this passage, Jacob is in the dark. Everything is gone. He's got no family. He's got no friends. He's got no possessions. Eerily, we're back to where we first saw Jacob in chapter 28, in the dark, alone. There's no one around. It's empty. He's penniless again. It's like when he first left home. The narrative is very similar to when he first met God, except this time. It's almost as if the sun is set on Jacob's life again, except now he's wealthier. He's got plenty, but he's humbler. The narrative is very similar to when he first met God, except this time he wants to know God. He wants to meet God. He's humbled. Verses 22 to 24, he's alone by the Jabbok, and there he wants to think. There he wants to prepare. And by this chapter, Jacob actually starts to pray. It's the first time you see Jacob starting to pray. Up until this point, he wasn't praying. He wasn't looking for God, searching for God, but now he's alone and he's praying. And he suddenly realizes in this period, he's not alone. Verse 24, a man comes and he wrestles Jacob all night, all night. Now, there are some lessons here. What does it mean to encounter God? Because a lot of us We're not searching for God. We're not thankful for God. We don't acknowledge God. We don't really even know God. And yet you very well may be wrestling God. What does it mean then to encounter God? One, 
Because sometimes encountering God is wrestling. One, it's got to be personal. You encounter him alone. You know, at Metro, it's almost, it's cliche now, almost at Metro. Metro, we always say that uh, community is critical in the life of Metro. And it's true. I mean, Sunday worship is absolutely necessary. There are many reasons why. If you ever want to talk to me about it, I'll tell you why. You can't just be by yourself and worshiping God and call yourself a Christian. Sunday worship is absolutely necessary to our lives, but it's not sufficient. It's not enough. If God is not personal in your life, you are lost. You are lost. Is it okay to say that in our culture today, in our community today? Because worship is not just an experience. It is an experience, but it's much more than that. Worship is not just about feelings. There can be feelings, but it's got to be more than that. Real worship is God's presence and his truth, his word, speaking into you and shaping you. Real relationship is when somebody's words are shaping you. You can be around a person for a long time in your life. You could have grown up with this person. But if their words have never shaped you, there's no relationship. You see that? Very important because most real crises in your life, you're going to face them alone. Whether it's sickness, big tragedies, you're going to face them alone. You're going to be alone. And so you can, have, you can be around a lot of people, but if you don't have a personal relationship with God, you are utterly and completely alone in the dark. That's the real terror. What's darkness? Confusion. There's no clarity. Right? That's the beginning of it. The darkness can get real, much deeper than that. So to encounter God, it has to be alone. It has to be personal. Number two, um, they wrestled all night. What does that mean? Um, you have plans in your life. You have an agenda in your life. You have goals in your life. But there are moments in your life when it almost feels like God is against you. It almost feels like God is countering you, going against your plans, point for point. You do something, and then something happens, and now you have to adjust, and then something happens again. Then you have to change course, and then something happens again. And maybe even the entire trajectory of your life has to adjust, and all of a sudden, you start to think, maybe this is about God. Maybe there is a God. You start to think about God. It makes you focus on your relationship with God, whether you have one or not in the moment. It makes you start focusing about your, I'm a pastor. I've seen many people over the years when they, I'm really curious and interested in people's stories, how they got here. And they say, you know, for a long time, I haven't thought about God. I never cared about God. I wasn't acknowledging God, thankful for God, knowing God, didn't even believe he exists. And then one day this happened. And then I start to think, you know, my friends, they've been going to church all their lives. Maybe I should go. Jacob's thinking, thinking, I was expecting and preparing to wrestle the man that has ruined my life, Esau. But now I'm spending all my energy and all my focus wrestling this man. That's what he's saying. Now he's focusing all of his energy, all of his time, all of his strength, all night. I mean, there are some struggles in our lives where it feels like that where all your energy, whatever you've got, stuff you didn't realize you have, it's pouring into something that is just a crazy distraction, almost a tragic distraction in our lives. And so you're battling and you're enduring 
and you're trying to make it through on your own, all alone, and you're focused. Thirdly, it's wrestling. And so when, when you're wrestling, when you're battling, there's conflict. It requires conflict. There's going to be ups and downs. There's a fight. There's a reversal. You know what that means? You know that you are developing a relationship with God when God starts to argue with you and goes against you point for point. You know, a relationship is not real until you begin to fight. A relationship isn't real in your life until you start to argue because that's when you see what the other person really values. That's when you see what the other person's really about, what you, what you really believe, what you really trust. I mean, a God that doesn't argue with you, a God that doesn't challenge you, a God that doesn't upend your goals, a God, a God that doesn't go against your desires, that's not a God. That's not God. A God that's a product of all your desires, the sum of all your desires, is not real. A God that always says yes, yes, yes. A God that you could just go to whenever you feel because you need something or want something. And a God that just listens and obeys. That's a God that doesn't exist, first of all. And that's not a God. That's not God. You see? We live in a world where everyone questions God all the time today. We live in a world where everyone questions the Bible, questions God. But think about this. Is it really sensible to question God like that but then dismiss him when he questions you? When God's questioning you, when he's upending your desires, what you want, when he challenges you? When you're questioning him and then he's questioning you, what's happening? You're starting to develop a relationship because he's getting personal. He's coming in, you see? Lastly, there's brokenness, lots of brokenness. There's a darkness, there's a weakness, there's an emptiness. Sometimes you, when you're wrestling with God, it feels like you are just powerless and maimed. That's Jacob here. Why does this man wear Jacob down? He just wears him down all night. Verse 25, eventually the man dislocates his hip. And Jacob is screaming. I mean, he's in excruciating pain. Up until this point in this wrestling match, they're evenly matched. In fact, there are some clues that almost make it feel like Jacob could be winning. It says here, the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, and then all of a sudden, he just touches him. The text, when you look at the Hebrew, the commentators, in some translations, it says that the text says that uh, he struck him or he flicked him, but that's because they're looking at the context of what's going on. In reality, this man is just countering point for point, point for point. The Hebrew language here says that it, it just connotes a touch. At one point, the guy, says, oh, the guy says, okay, that's it. Boom. Touches him, and Jacob's hip is just wrenched. It's gone. He can't move. And then he realizes that this man was really just playing with him all night. This man was just kind of kind of going point for point, just pacing him all night. That he's got a power that is so immense, incredible power. And then the horror begins to dawn on him because he realizes who it is. And the biggest clue is verse 26. The man says, it's daybreak. You must let me go. You see, at night, you can't see. When there's no electricity, we live in a, a powered world, so even at night, you can still see. But at night, in those ancient times, there's no electricity, no, no torches, no lamps, no street lamps. Everything is just pitch black. Not even close up. Even if the person was face to face, you can't see their face. 
But at daybreak, you can see a person's face. You can make out the person. And it's at this moment that it dawns, no pun intended, it dawns on Jacob, right, who this person is. And then he realized that everything he thought about God, everything he thought about himself, everything he thought about his life was wrong, completely wrong. Before, Jacob was trying to negotiate with God. He spent a lifetime negotiating, manipulating, lying, cheating, trying to get the best deal. He's like a, like a, a used car salesman, essentially, right? You know, you know the stigma of, of a salesman is what? Oh, this person's always, what's this person's angle? What's this person trying to get out of me? What's this person, how's this person trying to get me? And that's Jacob, always manipulating, always controlling. In fact, that's the meaning of his name. His name is deceiver. He did this by lying and scheming and working and running away. Why? Because Esau was the problem. Esau's the reason for all the things that are wrong in my life. And he just blamed everything on it. If it wasn't for Esau, I wouldn't be where I am today. From the moment he was born, he was wrestling Esau. From the moment he was born, who's going to come out first? Esau comes out first, and Jacob right behind him. It was the metaphor for his whole life. In fact, that's why he was named Jacob, the man who clutches the heel from behind. That was his name. He was always wrestling Esau. He was always wrestling his shadow. Between him and the life he wanted, Esau was always in between. But now, he realizes for the first time in his life, Esau is not the problem. Esau was never the problem. Jacob had been wrestling God all his life because he hated his life. So he was wrestling God. He wanted a better life. He hated himself. So he wanted a new self. And so he's working and, and striving and trying, and he realized you can't do it that way. You can't do it in this world in an honest way. So he's cheating and manipulating. Not Jacob, because Jacob didn't have the skills like Esau. Jacob didn't have the, the masculinity in a, in, a, in a world of patriarchs. He wasn't like that. And so he had to lie and cheat his way there, you see? And so he hated his name. He hated himself, because his name literally means the deceiver. But at that moment, Jacob realized the problem is not Esau. The problem is Jacob. The problem is himself, his sin. Robert Alter, uh, who I've been quoting uh, throughout the series, uh, incredible commentator, literal commentator in the Old Testament, probably one of the foremost Hebrew historians in that sense, he says this, that this man is the embodiment of the portentous antagonism in Jacob's dark night of the soul. He may be an externalization of all that Jacob has to wrestle with within himself. What that means is that at that moment, Jacob realized that the man he's wrestling with represents everything that he hated about his life, his insides, his brokenness, himself. He's wrestling, not necessarily himself, but the person that he thought he was wrestling was not who he was wrestling. He thought he was wrestling Esau. He thought he was wrestling himself. He was wrestling God. God says, let me go. And then he realized I'm face-to-face -face with God. I deserve to die. I've been looking for wealth all my life, and now I'm up against real wealth. I'm up against, I've been looking for beauty all my life. It's messed up my life. And now I'm face-to-face -face with beauty itself. 
I've been looking for power all my life to increase my worth and potential, my options, and now I am up against true power and I can't even walk anymore. You see? I should be consumed. But Jacob says, I will not let you go. You are the thing. You, I thought I was looking for wealth and beauty and power, but what I realized is what I need is you. It's a person. I will not let you go. I need you to bless me. All my life I've been chasing Isaac's blessing, my father's blessing, his promise. That was supposed to be my destiny, and I've been doing it on my own. I've been working and working and working, and I'm anxious, and I'm tired, and I'm depressed, and my life is a ruin. It's a mess at times, and I'm empty, and I'm lonely. He says, all my life I've been chasing that, And I realized that I've been angry at you, God, all my life. I've been wrestling with you all my life because of my life, because of my name. Verse 27, the man asks Jacob his name. He says, what is your name? And Jacob responds, Jacob. Now, that's amazing. You have to understand that's amazing because the first time that Jacob was asked his name, in this entire narrative, was, was uh, in Genesis chapter 27. Isaac asks, who are you? What is your name? And Jacob lied. He lied to steal the blessing. He said, I am Esau, your firstborn. But this time, he's broken, and he's humbled, and he's just physically maimed, and he's clutching at the leg of the man who had just destroyed his life. Robert Alter says it's almost as this man made, Jacob's name means crooked and deceiver. It's almost like this man physically made him crooked. He's going to walk in a hobble for the rest of his life. It was almost this way of saying that you were living out your name, and I need to make you crooked. I need to break you in order to straighten out your life. And so... This time he's asked, what is your name? And Jacob, he could have lied. It's what he does. It's what he's done. It's what he did all his life. It's what he does best, saving himself. But this time he says, my name is Jacob. Now, you got to remember, Jacob is the seed of God's promise. Through Jacob will come the Redeemer. But he's staring into the promise himself, the ultimate promise, himself. And this is the ultimate terror because of his name. That's why in some ways, if there's ever a moment where he would be tempted to lie, it would be here. If there's ever a moment where Jacob should be tempted to somehow lie, it's here. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, you see you have Adam and Eve, and they rebel against God. They rebel against God, but God in his faithfulness, God in his faithfulness promises that one day this seed of the Redeemer will crush the head of the serpent, the deceiver. And now the ultimate Redeemer is staring at the deceiver and saying, I want to know who you are. Jacob knows this is it. This is the fulfillment. I'm the deceiver. He's going to crush my head. He's got me. But he comes clean. 
He comes before the ultimate redeemer knowing that he deserves to die, but he comes clean and he says, yes, I am Jacob. I am a deceiver. I am a sinner. I am a liar. I am the enemy. I deserve to die, but I will not let you go. I've been looking for blessing all my life, and I'm staring now at the blessing himself. Jacob can't run. He's hobbled. He cannot escape. He's not even going to try. Notice, there's no more pride here. There's no more resume building here. There's no more pretense here. You don't see Jacob trying to negotiate with God. You don't see him trying to lie to God or manipulate God. There's nothing that Jacob has to offer God. He is broken and he is desperate and he says, I will not let you go. You are all I need. I need you. Now, he knows he's got wealth. He knows he's got a large family, a large family back then, many sons. It means you have wealth. And yet he says, I I need you. You are what I need. Until this point, Jacob's been using God. If you help me get wealth, if you help me to find love, if you help me to get the blessing, then I will worship you. Now he says, I can't let you go because you are the blessing. It's not these things. I'm not coming to God for things anymore. I'm coming to God for God. You see? You are true beauty. I've been looking for Rachel, but you are true beauty. I've been looking for wealth, and so I lied and cheated and stealed, but you are true wealth. I've been looking for true blessing, but I'm the deceiver. I don't deserve the blessing. I deserve to be cursed. And I thought all my life, I've been wrestling my family and my parents and my peers. I've been stepping all over them to get ahead. And my enemies, I've been working to earn the blessing, lying to steal the blessing. But I've been wrestling you all my life. You are the cosmic blessing. And so I I don't know you. And so I've been anxious and broken and empty Even though I've done pretty well, these things mean nothing to me. I need you. Verse 29, he says, what is your name? I want to see you. What is your identity? I want to know you. Because all these things that I have, they have not satisfied me, and they never will. They they were never meant to. I need you in my life. Jacob's saying, I've been born clinging to the heel as a curse in my life. But I'd rather die clinging to your heel as the blessing. God is saying here that he will only come into your life when you see that not having him in your life is the source of all of your problems. And having him in your life is the only solution. God is saying that he will only come into your life when you see that not having him in your life is the source of every problem that you have. And having him in your life is the only solution. That's the lesson in the climax. Now, the conclusion. How does it end? Does it end in a tie? Because you know who the winner is. And yet there's a twist. Verse 28, God says, you will no longer be named or called Jacob. Your name will be Israel because you have overcome God. You struggled with God, 
and you've overcome. In other words, I kind of use regular language. He said, Jacob, you are a loser. All your life, you've been a loser. But you finally realize that you've been wrestling me all your life. And because you surrender to me, I'm now going to make you a winner. You won because you gave in. You won because you lost. You won because you finally come clean and you're broken and you're surrendered. Throughout the Old Testament, to see God's face is to be intimate with him. Jacob says, I need you. I need to see you. I need to know you. I will not let you go. In the Old Testament, to see God's face is to be intimate with him. The Psalms always say, earnestly I seek you. I seek your face. The guy's not asking. The psalmist's not saying, I want to die, right? Because I know seeing your face means I'm going to die. He's not saying that. He's saying, I want to be intimate with you. I want to be in relationship with you. To know your name is to see him. Jacob says, I want to see you. What is your name? We call that the beatific blessing, you know? You hear it in your... In, um, the benediction, because the benediction means the good word, the blessing. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. You see, to see God's face is to be intimate with him, to be blessed. In verse 28, Jacob is given a new name, Israel. That means you struggle with God, you wrestle with God, you've overcome. Before his name was deceiver, his name was loser. God is saying to Jacob, you were born a deceiver. You were born a loser. But now, the word Israel means, I'm striving for you. God is for you. You've overcome with God. I'm declaring you a winner. You couldn't earn it. You finally realize you can't earn it. You can't steal it. It's all by grace. It's given to you. Even Jacob is amazed. He says, who are you? I know I deserve to die. But you declare me the winner. And he knew. He names the place Peniel, meaning what? I saw God face to face as he limps away and he's totally changed. He never walks the same again. And now you have, ironically, the sun rising above Jacob. Until that point, most of Jacob's stories have been in the dark it says as the sun is set on Jacob, and now you see at the end, the climax of his life, the sun is now rising above Jacob because he's overcome. He's won. God is for him. That's the conclusion. What do you learn from it? Just a few things. One, everyone here, we're all wrestling with God. We're all wrestling with God. You think you're fighting your enemies. That's why we gossip, and that's why we bite back at people. You think you're fighting your parents because you so desperately want their approval, especially in this generation, in this culture. You think you're fighting your spouse, your desires, your values, their desires, their values. You think you're fighting your children. They, you can't get them to just obey. You just can't get them to, you can't, they can't see all the stuff that you're doing for them. Can't they just see that? You think you're fighting your friends. You want to be better than your friends. We live in a culture of comparisons and jealousy. 
Instagram and Facebook are thriving off of a culture of jealousy. Who can get more, you see? You think you're fighting all these things, but you're not. You think you're fighting people in the office to get ahead. That's why you're so frustrated at work. I understand. Trust me. I understand. But you're not. You think the problem is Esau, but the real problem is you don't trust God. You don't understand God. You don't know God. That's why we're oftentimes blaming God, which is why we dismiss God, why we ignore God and neglect God, why we're oftentimes running from God because it goes up against our agenda and our goals. And it's why we always tend to step over other people. It's because you're wrestling God. Who or what is your Esau? Secondly, what is wrestling? What is an encounter with God? An encounter with God is oftentimes wrestling. What is wrestling? Oftentimes, you, are, you have to be alone. It's one-on-one. It's personal. That means in, we all come across situations in our lives, in situ, that are incredibly tragic or distracting at the least, and always upends your agenda. But it makes you think about what God is doing in your life, how you're fighting with him and battling him, suffering because of him. Look at J- Jacob. He's going to be limping around for the rest of his life, but now he's seen God, and it's almost like he's woken up. The sun has risen above him. Everyone has wounds. Everyone here bears scars. The scars could be things that have been done to you or a combination of things that have been done to you with things that you have done or a combination of just things that have happened to you. We all bear scars. But are those wounds, are those hurts waking you up? You know because of your limp. You never walk the same ever again. What does your walk look like? What is your gait like? What does your limp look like? Thirdly, Jacob is clinging to Jesus, the man. And he says, you are the blessing. Bless me. What he's saying is, I need more of you. He's pleading. What's he doing? He's praying. What do you pray for? We tend to pray for things. I want more of this. I want that. Oh, God, please give me and grant me this. Right? I need to get higher. I need to get more. Jacob says, I've had those things. I need you. Prayer is coming to God not to get more things, but to get more of God. Prayer is realizing that the only thing you need in your life is for God to be personal in it, to see his face, intimacy. Sometime later, about a chapter later, Jacob finally meets Esau. Earlier, Jacob's terrified. He's afraid. But he's not scared anymore. Why? I mean, think about it. Once you meet God face to face, what is there left to fear? Right? He's clinging to Christ, and it brought him in his brokenness and in his humility. He's clinging to Christ. It brought him courage, real courage. 
Lastly, Jacob deserved to die, yet God chose not to destroy him. He just touched him. I mean, if God demonstrated his full force, if God poured out on him his full wrath on Jacob, then the seed would have been wiped out and God's promise would have been a failure. God would have been a liar. God would have been a deceiver. But by sheer grace, he only touches his hip. Why does he touch his hip? In the Hebrew, that word hip, um, you know, on one hand, it represents uh, the power of a man. You know, the word actually uh, can be translated to the word thigh. The thigh was a symbol of a man's power, right? It's a very uh, patriarchal society. It represented his loins. And so it meant his strength, his power. So God, on one hand, is saying, I'm taking away the only strength that you think you have. You think you have strength. So I'm taking away your power to bring you a greater power. But on the other hand, he touches his thigh as a representation of Jacob's loins, his reproductive organs, his descendants. Godly throws out his thigh as representative of this, that though your life is spared and you deserve to die, one day one of your descendants will bear the full force of my wrath. And so in Isaiah 53, Isaiah writes, yet he was considered stricken by God. Jacob was just touched. He was considered stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Centuries later, Jesus Christ is God's own son, his son. God's own son is the descendant, the descendant of Jacob, and he comes down. And God Jesus comes not to strike with the full force of God, but to absorb the full force of God. Jesus comes not to strike with the wrath of God, but to absorb the wrath of God. And so he comes in weakness. He chooses not to overcome. He comes in weakness. He limits himself. He becomes defenseless. He becomes vulnerable. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, what do you see? You see him wrenched completely just joints, just out of whack, and he's, he's wrenched, and he's powerless, and he's defeated, and he was overcome. I mean, he could have said, that's it. Everyone's making fun of me. I've had it. I wipe you all out, and he could have done that, but instead, he chose to be overcome. He chose to be defeated. Why? If God defeats the deceiver by being overcome by Jacob, then Jesus Christ defeats the ultimate deceiver by being overcome through his brokenness and his weakness. On the cross, what do you see? You see darkness. It became dark while Jesus was on the cross. There was a storm. There was an earthquake. Jacob got the sun. Jesus Christ got utter darkness. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? You know what he's doing? He's staring out and he's facing the full force of God's wrath, the fire, the storm. He's riding the real hurricane of God's wrath, and he's wrestling God, and he's saying, I will not be overcome. I, I, I cannot overcome this. I cannot bear this. It's finished. I give up. Into your hands I commit my spirit. 
You know what he's doing? He's surrendering himself. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's staring at the ultimate darkness. And he chose to be overcome. Jacob received the blessing of God's face. Jesus Christ on the cross says, I am forsaken. I am receiving the curse of your absence. I cannot see your face. I've lost the intimacy of God. Why? So that we could have the intimacy of God. I've lost the presence of God. Why? So that we can have the presence of God and not be consumed. Jesus Christ says, I'm being totally consumed. Why? So that we could be blessed by God. Jesus Christ on the cross is saying, this is the real terror, the ultimate terror. I'm truly, truly, utterly alone. This is the real darkness. This is the real suffering. This is the ultimate wrestling. And I'm being overcome. And yet, do you know, he still calls God, God, my God, my God. He's still worshiping on the cross. When the gospel penetrates your life, you are saved through that brokenness of Jesus. That's the model for your salvation. You can lie, you can cheat. That's, this is the end of lying. You see, you can come clean. This is the end of you patting your resume spiritually, cosmically, physically, in every way. When you go on a date, this is the end of you patting your resume. You can come clean. It brought Jacob tremendous courage. It could bring you courage. I mean, if it could bring Jacob courage, this liar, deceiver, all his life, surely when you lie, you can have the courage to come clean. Maybe big parts of your life are a lie. You can come clean. Maybe you've been doing this all your life, trying to make yourself out to be more than you really are because deep, it's because deep inside, you're trying to plug that emptiness and the darkness, the night of your soul, what Robert Alter says. You can come clean. When Jacob tried to become great on his own, it made him suffer. It brought him brokenness. It's only when you say that my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, and you let that shape you, then you will have ultimate power. You see, that's the end of loneliness. That's the end of emptiness. That's the end of the wrestling with God. That's the end of the running with God. The running turns to moving towards God. You get to be intimate with God. You get to see his face. There is the embrace. There is the mercy. There is the peace, and that brings courage because you did nothing to earn it and you can do nothing to lose it. If you celebrate anything else, you're still fighting Esau. You're still wrestling with God. Look at the suffering wounds of Christ, the ultimate Jacob. When God comes in his beauty, when God comes in his power, it is scary, it is dreadful. The holiness is all-consuming, but when God comes with his wounds for you, and he's striving for you, that's an invitation. Who would you rather get to know? Somebody who makes himself vulnerable or somebody who's ready to attack you, right? When Jesus Christ comes with his wounds for you, that's an invitation. That is the only blessing you need. And that is the beginning of healing, all that brokenness. It's the beginning. You will never be the same.
your life will be changed forever. Do you trust that? Let it shape your life forever. Let's pray.